Well, we're in the middle of a series on um, what we're made of. So it's really kind of uh, vision stuff that's going on around here at Lakeland. Who's Lakeland? That sort of thing. Last week, we talked about what makes Lakeland Lakeland. And this week, what makes the Bible the Bible, at least according to Lakeland, uh, which means me because I'm the one talking about it. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things. I, I mentioned first service. I said, hey, you know, Lakeland staff, um, we all got new email addresses. Actually, we have new emails but we got a new server or whatever it's called. I don't know much about this stuff. But anyway, my point is, is like for years, I haven't been getting any emails from you guys. If you like type something to my official email and you guys probably think like, God, that guy's a jerk, man. He never like responds to any of my emails or anything like that. Guys, I never even saw him. I, I'd get just enough coming into my other Gmail box to kind of make me think that, you know, Either people just didn't like me or something like that or whatever. So, But anyway, so sorry that I never answered your email, but I never got it. But now I'm getting tons of emails. And as a matter of fact, I'm getting all the emails that I used to get, which are like for pew cushions and church insurance and microphones and all, all sorts of like stuff, churchy stuff. So I'm not too excited about getting all that, like total spammy kind of church junk. So anyway... So if you're trying to sell me pew cushions, you probably won't get a response. But um, anyway, we'll, I'll try and do better at, at receiving the emails. So just wanted to let you guys know that I'm not a bad person. I just didn't get your email. So at least not bad like that. So, all right, what makes the Bible the Bible? Is the Bible the Bible because it's supernatural? Is the Bible the Bible because it's historical? Is the Bible the Bible because it's wise, has wise things to say? Or is it prophetic? Or is the Bible the Bible because it's the printed utterances of the unknown God? What makes the Bible the Bible? Well, in a word, my word for it, what makes the Bible the Bible is it's personal. It's real. It's a personal story. It's your life. My life, our life, it's a story about people just like us, which is what makes it personal. It's people um, who have been living their life day in and day out. But those people have the golden storyline of God woven throughout their every moment of their life. And it's just been recorded. And so that's why every time we read the Bible, we think, well, that's me. Weird stuff has happened to me, and I had that kind of thought, and I've had those kind of bad thoughts. I've had those kind of great thoughts. I've prayed that prayer before. It's, that seems like my story, except even more so. And it's also the reason why every time you read the Bible, it seems that you learn something new, just like what Mickey was saying. You can read the same passage over and over, and suddenly it's all new because you're in a whole new place. But the Bible keeps applying to your life because it's personal, because it's your story. And that's why the Bible is still the number one selling book in the world, because it's everybody's life, even for people who don't believe. So um, allow me then to introduce to you my spectrum of biblical of views of the Bible. I, I think it's a spectrum. I checked the word. It might be a continuum, but I don't know what a long line is with arrows on either end, but it's one of these things. It's an arrowy thingy. And um, it's a spectrum of Bible views, and I've, I've set the thing up with extremes to it, okay? And then we are in the middle. So I'm going to tell you right up front that Lakeland's view 
is the correct view. It is the perfect view. Why is Lakeland's view of the Bible the perfect view? Because I got the microphone. That's why. So I'm talking. So that's why we are all awesome people because we are perfect in our view of the Bible. And all those other people don't have a perfect view of the Bible. Those people on either side of the spectrum. Okay. I mean, what do you want me to say? Like, hey, you guys ought to go find another church because our view of the Bible really sucks around here. So, you know, I mean, that's not going to happen. So um, that's, what, that's what we got. So, uh, all right. So there's some bias then on my spectrum of the views of the Bible. Now, let's just take a quick tour, tour of the spectrum here. You're going to see on, the, the far, uh, on this far left side, the conservative side of the view of the Bible. And then on the far right side, the liberal side. And you're like, that's not right. Like, yeah, I'm just messing with you. That's just the way I saw it. And so I just wrote it down that way. So you're just going to sit here the whole morning like, this is just messing with my whole worldview. Like, okay. <clears throat> Looks good for my side. All working up here. Turn around. That's my... So it's working that way. Yeah. So here in the middle then is our view. Somewhere right around in here with some bandwidth to it. There's some leeway on this thing. Either side. Right? There's the word personal. Like I said. The Bible's personal. It's real. It's good stuff. So, <clears throat> here our view. Let's turn then to explain this about our view of the Bible. And we'll go straight to Scripture, where Scripture is describing itself and saying why it's inspired, okay, and why it works. And you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So, if you have it on your phone or if you brought a real Bible or if you're at home and you want to look this up so you have it in front of you, which is nice because we're going to talk about it here for a few minutes. Second Timothy, it's in the New Testament, and it's chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 14. Okay? So this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says this. And by the way, let's get our players down here. So Timothy is a disciple of Paul. Timothy is most likely, as you'll probably see here in this text, he's probably Jewish. He's raised Jewish. And, uh, but he is now a Christian Jew. He's Christian. And he's basically functioning as a bishop in Asia Minor, okay? All right, so here we go. But as for you, Paul says to Timothy, <clears throat> continue in what you have heard and, and, and what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know that from whom you've learned it, meaning himself, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. That probably indicates why he's a Jew. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you read the scriptures, you'll see that Jesus was there all along. <clears throat> then Paul says this, and this is the famous verse here, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, training, righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. The Bible uses the breath of God as a way of describing the Holy Spirit. So the scripture is written by the Holy Spirit, or it is the Holy Spirit, or it is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, however you want to try and phrase this, because it's a little difficult to get your head wrapped around. At least it is for me. <coughs> now, in the Old Testament Hebrew, breath, the word for breath or wind is ruah. Ruah. It's a good Hebrew word. You know, you kind of have to cough a little bit when you say it. So there's this ruah. In the New Testament Greek, the word is pneuma. Or for those of you who have to 
say the P, it's pneuma. So it's pneuma, like pneumatic tires. They're filled with wind. You're like, they're filled with air. Like, yes, I know. But you get the drift. They're, they're filled with breath, okay? So the Holy Spirit is the hagios pneuma in the Greek. Hagios pneuma. Hagios meaning set apart, holy, divine, you know. Um, it's the breath of God. This is the same breath of God that moves across the waters in the creation, the ruach in the Hebrew. But I like this ancient notion of, the, of breath. That is, the thought of God moves in and out of the person, the reading the scriptures, like a natural rhythm of breathing. This is why our view of the scripture is a human story. It's personal. It is a daily rhythm of living. You breathe the scriptures in and out like God breathes the scriptures in and out of you. It is real. It is as practical as breathing and as normal. Your story is wrapped inside of God's story, inside of God's breath. And it resonates with us and we understand it because we are all synced up and are breathing together. So you go back to 2 Timothy verse three, or chapter 3 in these verses, and this is exactly how the author views the Scripture. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know, those, uh, you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Scriptures. This has been your food, right? This is your, uh, if you go back to the, um, the Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is, is one. The Lord is your God. This is your God. You take that, that word and you nail it to your doorpost. You put it on the back of your hand. You, you walk with it. This is everything you are. All scriptures, it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. All these practical things, right? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So... What's the goal of Scripture? To be equipped for good work. To guide, to train you. Now, it's not just a self-help book, which I'm going to get into in a moment. It's actually the breath of God. So first, Paul tells Timothy, these Scriptures are what you were raised on. Second, Paul then says these Scriptures will make you wise. And they'll make you wise in a certain way for the purpose of salvation in faith in Jesus Christ. And third, these scriptures are useful. They're useful for teaching, rebuke, correcting, training. They equip Timothy for good work, and they will equip us as well. Now, back to the spectrum. To the uh, right, over to the liberal side, okay? Over to this liberal side. Toward the liberal view of scripture, we find that instead of it just being personal, it's actually just now useful and practical at, at its best. And at its worst, it's something else. It's a good book. There's nothing special about it. It has some good things to say. It's got some things that we would disagree with. But if you can kind of filter it, you'll find some good, practical, useful information about life. The moral liberal view of the Bible does not have much use for God or God's breath or anything like that. That would be way too magical hocus-pocus for them. 
but it sure likes this practicality of the Scripture. At its worst, then, the liberal view of Scripture cuts out all the miracles, all the signs and wonders. There is nothing transcendent about it. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no visions. There's nothing. Jesus does not raise a little girl from the dead. There, Jesus does not multiply a few, a, a couple of fish and five loaves into thousands. Instead, with, with God pretty much absent in the liberal view, it says it's like this. Let's look, look. So a bunch of people went out to hear Jesus' sermon on the mount. And it was such a good sermon that they all, you know, had been hiding their lunch. And then it was such a good sermon, they all just brought their lunch out and said, like, ah, let's just share our lunches. And there were 12 baskets left over. See how cool that is when everybody just learns to share and we can all be socialists now. You know, and that's about all you'll come up with is something like that. The famous Dr. Albert Schweitzer wrote a book in 1906 called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. It's a very, very famous book, about 90 pages long. It's a short little book. And in the end, Schweitzer concluded that Jesus never raised from the dead because dead men don't rise. That's impossible. But Schweitzer said, but what we can learn from the life of Jesus, even though Schweitzer said he was crushed on the wheel of time, and it was a sad ending to a really, really good man. And what we can all really learn from the life of Jesus is what wonderful examples of human beings we ought to be and should go and be. And so Schweitzer, you know, he, he, he did what he, what he preached. And he actually, as a medical doctor, went to the middle of Africa and spent the rest of his life there helping people medically. He didn't believe in Jesus rose from the dead or anything like that. Thomas Jefferson, a Unitarian at best, he took his own New Testament, the Gospels, and he literally cut out every miracle of Jesus, every divine reference of Jesus, since he couldn't conceptualize the uh, miracles or the hagios pneuma, as we would call it, the breath of God. He took all of that out, literally cut it all out, and was only left with some wise sayings of Jesus, which is to say it was just a collection of moral and social ought-tos, you know, like be excellent to each other. That's about all you're left with. So we can easily then see the problems within this liberal view. It turns to this sort of naturalist thing. It's dated. It's not really current. It's an old dead book. And it's materialist. And by materialist, I don't mean it's because you're wanting a a new Hummer or something like that or a BMW. I'm simply saying you live in a material world because you're a material girl. No, I mean it's because you're a materialist because you only think in material. You only think that there is nothing... There's nothing supernatural, just to use a word I disagree with, which I'll talk about in a moment. There's nothing like that. You just simply live in a very pragmatic, practical, you know, what's right in your hand is the only thing you'll believe. That's what we mean by materialist. At its far end, it's a myth. See, if there's nothing divine beyond the thoughts and morals, then, of each private person, which is what the liberal view would say. If there's nothing beyond us except for our own morals and our own thoughts, we find ourselves then in a moral, social free-for-all. We are free-falling where each person is their own 
mini-God, their own divine being. You are the source of your own truth. There is no redemption. There's no forgiveness. Instead, God's grace, instead of God's grace, there's education. Instead of divine truth, there's science. Instead of miracles and signs, there's technology. This is the material worldview. And you could say this very same thing about God and all sorts of other things. This is philosophical at this point. This material worldview, it's supported by the modern, what philosophers call the myth of progress. The myth of progress, that the world is progressing towards some end, some golden El Dorado is just around the next corner, and someday, someday in the future, we will all achieve this, this progress, this place. This is like the original concept of the 1960s Star Wars, Star Trek, the original show, where someday... Humanity will then arrive at this place where we don't have anything else to do but to go around to the rest of the galaxy and say, uh-uh-uh, nah-nah-nah, don't do that. Be nice to each other. Everybody play fair. And that's about it. That's the myth of progress. The question is, is when will we arrive at it? And how much damage will happen between now and then? And is there any redemption or forgiveness? Is there any grace? Of course, modern history uh, makes it hard for me to believe in the myth of progress. The 20th century, the wars and the genocides have killed more people than all of history put together, all in the name of progress and of great ideals. With a secular materialist view of the world, there's nothing left beyond the self, nothing transcendent. There's no super meta-narrative. There's no divine story. There's just us. No wonder philosophers say we're trapped in a therapeutic malaise. By the way, uh, for those of you who are in our book club and the Winter Institute that are studying Francis Fukuyama's uh, identity on identity politics, you will see in chapter 10 that he references and talks about our therapeutic malaise. So philosophers still quite currently are talking about this sort of um, secular, low-grade, despair, this sort of nervous whistling in the dark, this waiting for Godot, you know, God who never comes, just to kind of quote Samuel Beckett's uh, play. The problem with the myth of progress is it's always hoping but never arrives, and it's always someday. And so Scripture has nothing to say to that because it doesn't have any sort of... uh, any, any God in it. And when there's not God, all you're left to do is take care of yourself and be your own God, which we'll get back to. Now, at the other end of the spectrum is the conservative side. And we have the conservative view of Scripture over here. At this end of the spectrum, the Bible is certainly mysterious. There is a God. There is a divine breath. There is the Holy Spirit. The Hagionuma is in full bloom. All the Bible's miracles are real and more than real. The Red Sea really split. Jonah really is swallowed by a big fish. Jesus somehow, miraculously, multiplies, thousands, uh, multiplies a few fish and loaves into thousands. Okay? 
So I absolutely agree with the Bible's God-bathed world, the world where God is present. This church believes in that view of Scripture. As a matter of fact, I take a rather postmodern view of Scripture, and this approach would be where miracles are not just supernatural, they're just normal. In a postmodern view of the world, it is it isn't that the problem with supernatural is you can actually see it. It's supernatural. It's above and beyond what is natural. I disagree with this. I'm getting this from philosophers and from theologians, by the way. I disagree with this concept. In a postmodern world, it's as though God is the natural thing. There's nothing exceptional about parting the Red Sea. If there is a God, that's a normal thing. So if you're postmodern, you say, like, yeah, I get that. And if you're like the rest of us, you're sitting around saying, like, what? But it's like this in Scripture. 1 Kings chapter 6. This is about Elisha, not Elijah. This is his uh, protege, the one he passed the mantle to, Elisha. Great story. It's, this is your postmodern moment in the Bible, by the way. Here it goes. Elijah uh, is surrounded, and his servant, Elisha and his servant are surrounded by enemy armies. They could see them all around them. And Elisha's servant says, Alas, master, what shall we do? We're surrounded. And Elijah answers, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha, Elisha prays, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They were there all the time. Elisha just had to pray for his servant to have the vision to see it. And for you and I, God is present all around us. All we need is the vision to see it. Amen? That's the way it works. God is not magical. God is not supernatural. God, God is not some mysterious thing that you have to conjure like a genie out of a bottle. No, 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 no. God is the most natural, normal thing in our universe. In and out comes the breath of daily rhythms in life. You see it all around you. But I absolutely then reject the view of the Bible when it becomes a superstitious folk religion. When it becomes a folk religion. When it becomes more magic than normal. When it's nothing but a a coded secret society's book. When people turn it into this magical, crazy stuff, yeah, where it's superstitious and it becomes coded. And what really happens is, is the people take, this, take the Bible and they say, we have the secret decoder ring for how to understand the Bible in our possession. We are the only ones who truly have knowledge of what's going on. We have insight that others don't have. Now, growing up personally in a church who had this view of Scripture, uh, we spent each Sunday evening going over the world's events and then interpreting them according to the book of Revelations and the late great end of the world and when it will happen. 
where helicopters are actually hordes of locusts in metaphor, and the Soviets are the Antichrist, and Armageddon, will it happen this week? And I wish we'd all been ready. Over and over and over every week. And we were all supposed to be ready, except somehow, as I've grown up, I began to realize that I'm not sure they really wanted everyone to be ready, because then they wouldn't be special. They were only the ones that wanted to be ready. Everybody else is going to burn in hell for eternity. It's kind of weird. It kind of made him happy. And um, so, yes, I, I believe plenty of you grew up with this same view of the Bible. I, I'm just getting this because, why do I think this? Because you keep asking Pastor Garrett all of those revelations questions that are exactly the same sort of stuff. So I don't think I'm alone around here. Now, you guys who grew up Catholic, you're sitting around saying, like, you guys believe what? So, strangely alike, the liberal end of the spectrum and the conservative end of the spectrum are closer to each other, even though they would never agree. They're closer to each other. It was like my seminary professor who took the piece of paper with the same sort of spectrum on it, and he took the piece of paper in our notes, and he folded it around, and he showed that they were so close together. Why were they close together? Because they both seek power. The liberal side seeks personal power and personal autonomy. There is no God that I am accountable to. I am my own invictus. I am captain of my own ship. I am my own God. Don't tell me otherwise. I have all my own personal rights. And these people over here on this far extreme conservative magical side said, we are the only ones with the special knowledge. We are powerful. But what I find in the middle is the human story where people need redemption and forgiveness and mercy and grace. This is not a a downer on technology and science and education. And it's not necessarily a downer on people's faith. It's when it becomes unreal that I disagree with. And what we find here is just us in our everyday living, breathing in and out each day, the hagionuma. I haven't run into one person who I've ever taken on a retreat who after a few retreats and after days of solitude and silence, after several retreats, they don't walk in at some point with their journal and they say, you know what I heard today from God? I'm not in control. I'm not in control. And all of life is about control at either end when it comes together. It's about power and control. And the message of Scripture over and over and over is you are not in control. God is in control. Each day has enough worries of its own. The Bible is our story, everyone. Indeed, The Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides our motives and our thoughts and our intentions, and it tells you that you're not in control. 
God is. And that's why the entire Bible is about a relationship with God. And it's a personal story. Where people who thought they were in control aren't. And people who feel out of control fall into the hands of the living God. And we all end up using that overused, tired, worn-out word for the Bible. It's the book of love. Because love is the only thing that responds to people who feel like they're out of control. And that's who you belong to. And that's why the Bible over and over and over works for people. Because they suddenly realize that God loves them in these pages. And they realize it's, not, it's beyond the book. It's my life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. And that's why it's probably arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. Lord, we come to you as people trying to be in control, and we're not. We just aren't. May we find our lives in you. May we, in each breath that we take, every breath that we inhale and exhale, may we find your spirit, and may you write your word upon the pages of our life. And may we understand that you love us so much that you sent your only son, Jesus. And in that name, we live another day. And we all said, amen.